Kids already shouted out a thank you to the leaders, and I want to echo that. It was a great, great week. Well, boys and girls, while you're still in the room, I want to ask you a question because it has a lot to do with our text for this morning. So boys and girls are just saying for us, do you guys like to get gifts? There's one who does. Boys and girls, do y'all like to get gifts? Yeah, I know you like to get gifts. But why do people give you gifts? That's the question I want to think about as we start this morning. Why do people give you gifts? And they give you gifts because they love you. That's obviously part of it. But as a parent, I can tell you it's a joy to give my kids gifts because I enjoy giving them things that I know they could never get on their own. It's a joy to give my kids things I know that they don't have a job, they can't earn the money to buy it, or things they can't even get to the store to go get. And there's joy for me as a father to be able to give my kids gifts that they cannot get on their own. The reason I ask that is because I want to ask the question this morning, why must our salvation be a gift from God? Why must our salvation, our rescue for sin, God delivering us from sin, God giving us a relationship with Him, why does that have to be a gift completely from Him? Throughout Ephesians chapter 1 that we just finished last week, we've seen so much of what it means to have salvation in Christ. We've seen what it means to be forgiven, to be chosen by God. We've seen what it means to be adopted, to belong to His family. We've seen so much in there, but the question is, why is this all of Him? Why is this a gift Why can I contribute really nothing to it? Well, that brings us to Ephesians chapter 2. So find Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue our journey through Ephesians. And we come today to a text that's not a feel-good text. This is one of those texts that you don't run to if you're just going to pick up your favorite text to preach. So if you invite a guest preacher to church, they're probably not going, I really want to preach Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. This is not the run-to text, but friends, if you're visiting Gateway or New The reason we preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, is because it makes us come to the texts that are hard and the texts that are fun, the texts that challenge us and the texts that are easy as well. And so we come to this today as we study the whole counsel of God's Word for us. This tough text today of Ephesians chapter 2 is so essential for us because it shows us why our salvation must be a gift. It shows us why our salvation has to be all of God, 100% from Him. It's going to show us this morning in a painful way our condition before we met Christ. It's going to show us the condition of all those who are not followers of Jesus. And it's going to show us very directly why you and I do not deserve God's love and salvation. And so as Paul writes to the people in Ephesus and to us, he does not mince any words. He does not shy away from telling them and from telling us our condition apart from Christ Jesus. He's giving a spiritual diagnosis. And friends, it's painful and it hurts. But think about it this way. If you go to the doctor... And you have your physical, and the doctor comes in the room, closes the door, and has that very serious look on his face. And the doctor says, I have bad news for you. And you can feel in the diagnosis, might be you have cancer or something like that. When the doctor tells you, I have bad news, you have cancer, do you yell at the doctor, no, that's not true. I came here for you to tell me how good I am. Don't tell me that. You don't yell at the doctor when the doctor tells you the bad news because you know he's speaking the truth or she's speaking the truth. You feel the pain of the words, but you listen to what it is. You believe it, and you follow whatever plan the doctor gives you. I want you to keep that in view because this morning's text is a tough text, but it shows how our Creator describes our natural state. It shows how a spiritual diagnosis of where we are on our own, the place we all start, and the diagnosis is not good for us. It's going to show us why salvation must be a gift. But I also want you to realize how freeing this is, this tough idea here. Because think about it. If you've been in pain for months, and you don't understand why you don't feel energetic or why you feel sick, And you go to the doctor, and the doctor tells you, you have this disorder, you have this problem. 
All of a sudden, I was free. Oh, I wasn't making this up. I understand now why I'm struggling. And now you realize what the hope is for it. In the same way, we start understanding through this text why we have such a hard time with sin. Why we keep falling. It's going to give us insight into our struggle, our problem. And I pray that God gives us grace to not get mad about it, to not be offended by what God says about us, not to question it, but like going to the doctor to get a diagnosis, to realize it is true. And if we have received the cure for it, to celebrate. If we've not, to cry out for it. So with that in view, there's one main point I want you to see to answer this question. Why must our salvation be a gift from God? And it's simply this. We are hopeless on our own to change ourselves or our standing before God. Why must our salvation be a gift from Because we are hopeless on our own to change ourselves or to change our standing before God. Notice the word hopeless there. This is not some challenge for us that we can overcome. This is something absolutely impossible, an absolute impossibility for us. We are hopeless unless God does something. We cannot change ourselves, our nature, our propensity for sin. And we cannot change how our standing, how God views us, what God is going to give us because of our sin. There's nothing we can do in our strength to change these things. But friends, once we see that and realize what's hopeless for us is possible with God, it fills us with joy and hope in the gift that God gives us. So with that in view, let's come to Ephesians chapter 2. I want us to look at the first three verses. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? If you're visiting Gateway, we do this because we want to treasure God's Word and realize what a blessing we have that He has revealed Himself to us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. The words are on the screen for you also. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, Find the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the whole counsel of your word. We're thankful for the texts that make us uncomfortable and the texts that we rejoice in. God, we're thankful that you love us so much. You show us who you are and you show us who we are in our desperate need for you. God, I pray this day that as we look at these words, Father, for those who know you, who've been changed by you, God, I pray today you fill their heart with wonder at your grace and your mercy and thankfulness for all you've done. And Lord, for those who have not yet believed, I pray today you would be that diagnosis where they would see their soul and the way it really is, perhaps for the first time. You might use that to draw them close to yourself. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Friends, we are hopeless on our own to change ourselves or our standing before God. Let's start with the idea that we're hopeless to change ourselves. We're hopeless to change our nature. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Paul is making an absolute statement. This is not a metaphor. He's speaking of our actual spiritual condition. He's not talking about a possibility. You might be dead in your sins and you were dead in your sins. This is a default state. He's not saying this is just for the really bad people, not just for the dictators who commit genocide. This is for everyone in the world that you were dead and your trespasses and sins. We are spiritually dead apart from Christ. Notice he doesn't say you're spiritually weak. He doesn't say you're spiritually needy. You need to spiritually grow. The image here is you are, apart from Christ, dead. This is so sobering to realize that all around the world are literally billions of people who are walking around physically alive, but their spirit is dead within them. They are spiritually dead, though they're walking around physically alive. How are we dead? Well, he tells us in verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. These words trespasses and sins are two words that describe the same idea. The word trespass means to stumble, to go the wrong direction. It's the imagery of God telling us, this is my plan, how you're to live. And we go, nope, thanks God, I'm going that way. 
and we run. It's the idea of running from God. The other word here, sins, is the most common word for rebellion against God in Scripture. It literally means to miss the mark. So think of a an bow and arrow and a bullseye, and you have the target in the middle you're to be shooting for. If the arrow doesn't hit the center of it and it doesn't even hit the target, it falls short, you've missed the mark. That's the word for sin. It's the most common word for sin throughout the Bible is literally missing the mark because the center of that bullseye is God's standard, and God's standard is 1 Peter 1.16 that quotes from Leviticus, Be holy as I am holy. God's standard is holiness. And friends, we don't just miss holiness a little bit. We, we don't even get on the target. We fall so short. That arrow doesn't even get close to it. And so trespass and sins. God says, go this way. We go, nope, I'm going that way. God says, be holy. And we say, nope, I'm down here in my sin. So friends, sin is anything that is not holy or perfect like God. We often think of sin and the things that are wrong to do. Lying, murder, killing. But remember, Jesus raises the bar. If we think impure thoughts, it's a sin. If we hate people in our heart, it's a sin. But it's not just doing wrong things. Remember, sin is also not doing the good that God requires. That means if we're not delighting in His Word, we're in sin. If we're not praying without ceasing, we're in sin. If we're not loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we're in sin. If we're not loving our neighbor and ourselves, we are in sin. And all these things, ultimately, friends, trespassing the sin is rebellion. It's us doing things our way instead of God's way. Choosing to go our path, not God's path. Choosing to use our standards, not God's standards. And notice how he describes it for us here in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Friends, notice the important word here. And it's easy to miss this. He doesn't say you were dead because of your trespasses and sins. Do you notice that? We're not dead because we sin. We are dead. That's our nature. Therefore, we sin. The word is in here. It's the, in the Greek, it's the case that means the location. That literally our lives are immersed in sin. Our nature is full of sin. Therefore, we sin because our nature is... We are sinners. Friends, you've heard me say before, but no baby is born, and the parent looks at them and goes, wow, my baby is perfect and holy, and, and man, I wish my child would just learn how to sin a little bit. No one's looking at their kid going, man, my kid is so pure and so giving, and oh, my little toddler only cares about other people, not themselves, and why does my toddler give away all their toys to everyone else? Sure, I've got to teach them how to lie and be dishonest and be selfish. No. We're born sinners. You don't have to teach a kid how to sin. That's the default position of all of us because our nature is in sin. That's where we all go. Therefore, as parents, we cry out for lots of grace to teach our kids how to trust God and run away from that sin, not run to it. Our default position is we are sinners. We are in our sin, and we are dead, and it shows in the way that we sin. Our spiritual deadness in our soul shows itself in our lives. Look at verses 1 and 2 together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That's our nature. Verse 2, in which you once walked. Walked is a metaphor for living. People who are spiritually dead in their nature, dead in their sins, are going to sin because of it. The sins flow out of that nature that is spiritually dead. Deadness shows itself. It becomes obvious. And there's three ways that deadness becomes obvious. That spiritual death shows itself here in verses 2 and 3. And listen for the three ways it shows itself here in, in verses 2 and 3. So back to verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. There's three ways our spiritual deadness shows itself. First of all, we follow the evil ways of the world. If we are spiritually dead in our nature, the way it shows in our life is we follow the evil ways of the world. Look back at the beginning of verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world. Course here means age. The Greek word for world here is cosmos. 
Cosmos is used in Scripture over 186 times, and every time you see the word cosmos, it's always used to refer to evil. This is not a good word. It's not just speaking of the creation. It's speaking of the corruption of creation, the evil in the world. So you could literally translate this phrase in verse 2 as following the, this present evil age. You're following this age that's full of evil. Friends, because we are spiritually dead in our nature, because we're born that way, unless God intervenes in our life, we love what the world loves. We value what the world values. We follow the evil things of this world. That includes our selfish pursuits. Unless God intervenes, what we love, what we follow after our own selfish pursuits, not others. If Unless God intervenes, what we love that the world loves is material desires, is power, is pleasure, is sexual immorality, is rebellion against authority, and on and on and on we could go. Unless God intervenes, we will follow the evil ways of the world. And that's not the only way our spiritual deadness shows itself. It also means we follow Satan as well. Look at also in verse 2 here, the next phrase. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, it doesn't say Satan here, but all these descriptions, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, these are all titles for Satan that are used throughout the scripture that just get brought together to give us a picture of who, apart from Christ, we are following. It's referring to Lucifer. He was the most beautiful angels, the most powerful of angels, who got jealous that God was getting the worship. And we'll do a whole sermon series on this one day, I pray, but he rebelled against God because he wanted the worship himself. He convinced other angels to follow him. God obviously stronger because Lucifer was created. God is not created. God is bigger. Lucifer was cast into hell, but he still is jealous of God being worshipped. He still is jealous of God getting the glory, and he still tries to lead people away, astray from God. He's now a prince here because he commands other demons. And notice he's not just passively sitting by, just hoping things don't go God's way. You can look at the phrase in verse 2. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There is a very real enemy who's actively working in people's lives to keep them from God. Lying to them about who they are, lying to them about who God is, pursuing, leading them down these paths of material pursuits and power pursuits and pleasure pursuits and all these things to try to keep them away from God. He keeps them bound in there was sin. So people who are spiritually dead are following the evil ways of the world. They're following Satan. But friends, they're without excuse because the third thing we see them following, the third evidence is they're following their own desires. They're following their own simple desires. Look at verse 3 that describes it. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Friend, our sinful desires do not come about by coercion. The world doesn't make you sin. Satan doesn't make you sin. You sin because you want to sin. You sin because your desires, your fleshly desires, are to do what you want to do, not what God wants you to do. We can't pass the blame. No one can coerce us into sin. We follow our own desires. And yes, the world, the evil desires of the world, lure us away and try to call to us. And we follow those because we want to. Satan calls and people follow because they want to. It comes out of their own sinful desires. So, friends, people who are spiritually dead follow the ways of the world. They follow Satan and they follow their own desires. And that's all given to us to show us how hopeless we are on our own to change that nature. How hopeless we are to change that nature. We are spiritually not sick, we're spiritually dead. And this image is there for a reason. Friends, think about something here about being physically dead. Do you remember the account in the scriptures in the gospel? When Lazarus has died, one of Jesus' good friends. And Lazarus, Jesus lets him stay dead for several days. He gets buried. And Jesus goes to him and says, open the tomb. And people are thinking, what's he doing? He's going to stink. He's been dead for several days. And he opens the tomb. The tomb. Does he say to Lazarus, okay, Lazarus, take the first step, then I'll meet you halfway. 
No, he can't. Lazarus is dead. There's no Lazarus taking the first step, then God meets him. There's no him doing his part and God doing his part halfway. He is physically dead, so unless God breathes life into, into Lazarus, there is no hope for Lazarus. That's an intentional image that's being used here to help us understand that unless God intervenes in our lives, we are spiritually dead. God doesn't meet us halfway, and we contribute part of our salvation. He contributes part. Friends, we are dead, and dead people cannot respond to life unless a miracle happens in this. We are hopeless on our own to change our nature. But there's more than just that, friends. We are hopeless on our own to change our standing before God, to change how God sees us. Verse 3. Again, not the text we frame and hang up in our houses, right? Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature, and this is our nature, this is who we are born as, we are, by our nature, we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, we don't think about God's wrath very often. When was the last time you heard a Christian song on the radio about God's judgment and severity and wrath? We just don't think about that. But if you go back to, to Romans chapter 11, verse 22, I hope you'll read it later today. It says in Romans eleven twenty-two, note the kindness and the severity of God. And friends, we've lost that balance. Our culture, churches, what we listen to, what we think about is the kindness of God. And that's right. That's who God is. But we're told in Romans eleven twenty two to note the kindness and the severity of God. And friends, we ignore what the Scripture commands us to think about so often, and we ignore it to our own peril. We must understand how God views sin. We must understand how God views those who are outside of Christ. We must understand how God views us before Jesus changes us. And that is the phrase here, children of wrath. Now, what is God's wrath? Again, it's not what we think about. Wrath is so misunderstood today. Wrath is not vindictiveness. Wrath is not rage. That is not what we're talking about. God's wrath is, here's the best definition I can find of it, it's God's consistently pure anger to evil. Wrath is God's consistent, it's unchanging, pure, it's holy, it's consistently pure anger towards evil. Not all anger is wrong. There's simple anger, but there's also righteous anger. And this is God's righteous anger towards evil. That means he will fairly punish all sin. So what is God's wrath? It's his consistently pure anger to evil, meaning he will fairly punish all sin. There's a lot we can say about that that we don't have time to do today. But if you want to go deeper on this, back last spring we did a teaching series on the attributes of God. Sorry, last year we did a teaching series on the attributes of God. And we spent a whole hour one Wednesday night looking at the wrath of God. Where do you see it in Scripture? Because it's not just an Old Testament concept. It's all throughout the Bible. It's part of God's unchanging nature. So if you want to go deeper in understanding what this is, if this kind of rubs you wrong, I encourage you to go to our website. Go to resources, go to sermons, and there'll be a tab at the top for attributes of God. And you'll find the teaching under that for the wrath of God. It's a whole hour of what does this look like and what does this mean. I encourage you, if you missed that last year, to listen to that. God's wrath is holy. It's good. It's pure. It's not a bad attribute of God. It's a good attribute of God. Friends, let me just say this. Do you realize how hopeless life would be if there was no hope of future judgment against sin? If everyone who's ever wronged your whole life, there will be no punishment for that. If all the sins of this world that seem to go unpunished, there's no judgment. Do you know how hopeless life would be if there's no eternity and no judgment? Friends, God will deal with all sin. And realize God's wrath is right, is just. God never has unjust wrath. He never punishes anyone who does not deserve it. He never directs his wrath to people who are unworthy of receiving it. It only goes to sinners deserving of it. Now, there's one problem. That's every single one of us. Romans 3 is very clear. Romans 3, 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our culture tells us you're basically good. The problem is your environment. The problem is all these things. Friends, the problem is my heart and your heart. 
The problem is we are spiritually dead. We are sinners, therefore we sin. And so God is right, just, pure, holy to punish us for our sin. Therefore, the default position of us is what it says here in verse 3. We are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, this is not a new concept for us. John chapter 3. We think about John 3, 16 a lot because God so loved the world. But John chapter 3, verse 36 that we looked at when we did our series through John. says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. It's all throughout the scripture that if we're outside of Christ, we're receiving already and will receive God's, God's wrath, his righteous judgment on sin. Because there's nothing you or I can do, not only to change our nature, but to change that standing before God. Try, try to think about this is an image that helped me before. Think about the Grand Canyon. If you've ever traveled out west and seen the Grand Canyon, and I saw pictures, but when I saw it for the first time, you stand on the edge and you look down and it's like straight down. And you look as far as you can see before you can see the other side. Now, I can stay on the edge of that, and if I'm over here in my sin and the other side is God's holiness, there's no way I can try to jump across that canyon. I might try to jump. I'm not an athlete, so if I jump, I might get a few feet out, and then I'm going straight down, right? Well, if I have an Olympic jumper who won the gold medal in the Summer Olympics for a long jump standing next to me, he may be able to jump a lot further across than me. He's not going to make it. He's still going down also, friends. There's people who are very outwardly good, very outwardly righteous, but no matter how much good works, no matter how righteous or religious we seem, it doesn't matter. You're not going to jump across that canyon and change your standing before God on your own. We're all going to fall in that canyon, no matter how good we appear on the outside. Every single person on the planet has sinned, has offended God. Every single person on the planet is therefore, by default, starting off spiritually dead. Yes, some are more religious than others, and some do more good than others, but unless Christ intervenes in our life, doesn't matter how religious or how moral or how good we are, we will be children of wrath. God's holiness requires him to punish sin, therefore we all deserve judgment. Friends, we are hopeless on our own to change ourselves or our standing with God, how God views us. Now, what's the point of this diagnosis? Why in the world is Paul writing this, and why in the world am I talking to you about this? Why, what is this all about here? Well, to get the answer to what this is all about, we have to notice the pronouns in this text. Because this does not say here that your annoying lost neighbor is dead in their trespasses and sins. Then say that that really hardened family member is dead in their trespasses and sins. Go back to verse 1. Remember who he's writing to. And who is dead in their trespasses and sins? You. Do you notice the you and the we here? Verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. In which, verse 2, who walked? You once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom who lived? We all once Lived. This is written to the yous and to the us. This is not focused on the lostness of the world. This is written to believers. Remember chapter 1. This is written to the saints who are in Ephesus, to who are faithful in Christ. This is written to the ones who have received every spiritual blessing, who are predestined, who are chosen by God, who are adopted, who belong. He's writing to that crowd, to these believers, these saints, and says, You were dead. You were following Satan. You were following the world. You were following your fleshly desires. Why would he say that to them? Well, now we have to notice not just the pronouns, but the tense. Is this present tense or past tense? This is past tense. Go back to verse 1. Notice, he doesn't say you are dead in your trespass, but you were, past tense, previously, but no longer dead in your trespass and sins. Verse 2, in which you once, formerly, previously, but no longer walked. You previously were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's working sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once, past tense, formerly lived in the passions of our Friends, he's reminded them of who they were 
before Christ intervened. This is written to believers, not talking about the lostness of the world. This is written to the church, to Christians, saying, this is who you used to be, but you're not that anymore. And friends, if this still describes you, you need to do a quick search of your heart here. Because if you are still claiming the name of Christ, claiming to be on a church roster, a member, a follower of Jesus, but you're still following the present evil age, if you're still following Satan's plans, not God's, if you're still enslaved to the passions of your flesh, if you're still doing that, that's not what God wills for you. If you are in Christ, he's going to change you, and you will no longer be these things. In fact, we're going more depth next week, but notice verse 4 and 5 of this text. This is all past tense, what believers were previously like. But then verse 4, the two most hopeful words in the Bible, but God. And let that sink in. But God, this described how hopeless we are. You cannot change your nature. You cannot get across that canyon and change your standing before God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were, past tense, dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Friends, we're going to go into a lot more depth than that next week. But realize, not because of us, but because of what God has done. He took us who were dead, and he made us alive. He took those of us who were walking in sins, and now made us saints who were faithful to him. He took those of us who were following the world and the evil of this age, and he turned our hearts so we're now following Christ. He took those of us who were following Satan's plans, though perhaps not consciously we're still following Satan's plans, and now we're following God's plans, submitted to him as our Lord, our Master, and our boss. He took those of us who were captive to our passions of our flesh, and he's delivered us from this, so we're free now to walk in holiness. And he's writing this to believers to remind us of our old nature, to remind us of how we used to be and how he has changed us. He's reminding us of how hopeless we were on our own to change ourselves or to change our standing before God. Why? To show us how amazing God is. To show us that what is impossible with us, you cannot change your sin nature. You cannot change your standing before God, but God can. He's highlighting the greatness of God to do the impossible. He's doing this to show us how kind God has been to us. That we've received a gift but a gift that we could never, no, never pay, a gift that we could never have earned or even tried to earn in our own strength, that God has given it to us. He gives it to, he's telling us this to make us thankful. He's ultimately telling us all these things so that we will glorify God. Because these verses show us how great God is, not how great we are. These verses are sobering to put us into our place, to help us understand our sin nature, but the glory of God. This is given to us to lead us to worship Him. He shows us how hopeless we were on our own to change ourselves or our standing before God. Friends, that's sad news. There's nothing in any of our own strength we can do to change our sin nature or to change our standing before God. But, verse 4, but God is hopeful because of what God can do. And we'll go much more deeper in that next week. But for today, if you were one who still is, you were these things, but that's still present tense for you. You are still dead in your trespasses and sins. Sin still controls you. You still are just living like the world, and there's no difference in your life from that of the world who does not claim to know Christ. If you're one who's still following the enemy, enslaved to the passions of your flesh, if that's still you, this text is to wake you up. This text is a grace gift from God to give you that spiritual diagnosis that if this is not past tense for you, but present tense for you, you need God's grace. Quit trying to be religious, quit trying your own strength, and cry out to the only one who can rescue you and save you, and that is Jesus Christ. And friends, for those of you who have been changed by God, who have believed, and let me remind you from our study of the Gospel of John, belief is not just some intellectual thing you do. 
Belief is receiving a radical transformation from above. If you have believed in Jesus, trusting in him and him alone to forgive you of your sins, and it is evidence itself by giving you life, by you see the change that's happening as he's growing you and convicting you, as you see yourself growing in your knowledge of him, growing in your love for him, seeing holiness grow in your life, if that is you, friends, realize it wasn't because you were so smart or so wise or you figured it out. It was because of but God being rich in mercy. And he did what was impossible for you to do. He changed your nature and he changed your standing before him. My prayer for you is if you are one who has never experienced that, that this week will be the week that you see that diagnosis from your creator. See your need for him and cry out to him to say, do what I can't do, change me and change my standing before you. But friends, if you're one who God has changed, I pray that not just today, but all this week, God will open your eyes to see with thankfulness all he has done and is still doing for you. And he will keep that work of changing so that you will continue to glorify him and worship him for all he has done. And next week, friends, we'll go a lot deeper into what God's grace looks like in our lives so we can celebrate that even more. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful that you love us so much. You do not leave us where we are. God, this is your grace gift to us to show us how hopeless we are on our own. God, I thank you. You love us so much that you don't hesitate to tell us that we were children of wrath, that we were lost in our sin. And Father, there's anyone in this room who's never gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. God, I pray that today, oh God, through the work of your Holy Spirit, wooing and drawing, would you let them today come under a conviction of their sin and their losses that they have never, ever, ever felt before. And God, I pray that they would quit striving in their own strength to try to do good works to please you or try to change on their own. But God, they would look to you and your mercy alone to change their nature and to change their standing to where they become not children of wrath, but your adopted children who experience every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Lord, for those of us who've experienced that, God, I pray that today and this week you would fill our hearts with thankfulness. God, realizing that we brought nothing to our salvation except our sin. God, it's all of you. You are the one who saw us in our spiritual death and decay. And God, you looked upon us. Instead of giving us the judgment we deserve, you softened our hearts and turned us to you. You breathed life into our heart and soul. You've taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. Lord, we thank you for your grace that has changed our nature and changed our standing before you. And yet, Lord, thank you seems so inadequate to say that you have taken us in our death and given us life. But Lord, our words fall short, but that's what we say. God, would you this week in my heart, in the heart of these precious brothers and sisters who know you and love you, would you this week remind us of your incredible grace as we think about these, these hard words where we came from. God, I pray it would make us treasure and cherish and value your grace even more, knowing from what you rescued us. God, as you show us these things, as you, your Holy Spirit keeps speaking these into our life this week, I pray that we would respond with hearts full of thanksgiving and hearts full of worship. But Lord, we also pray for those around us who do not know you. For us, God, you have put us where you've put us for a reason. And God, there are people all around us in our job places, in our neighborhoods, the people we run into in the community, God, who are they're physically walking around alive or spiritually dead. Now, would you give us eyes to see them the way you see them? Would you give us hearts of compassion that you feel towards them? And God, would you let us be bold to open our mouths and to point them to the only hope there is, and that's in you. And we give you the praise for what you've done, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning?